Witnesses, Concerns, and Questions Number 1. The testimony of the three and eight witnesses to the Book of Mormon is a key part to the testimonies of many members of the church. Some even base their testimonies of the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon on these eleven witnesses and their testimonies. As a missionary, I was instructed to teach investigators about the testimonies of the witnesses to the Book of Mormon as part of boosting the book's credibility. There are several critical problems for relying and betting on these 19th century men as credible witnesses. Number 2. Magical Worldview In order to truly understand the Book of Mormon witnesses and issues, one must understand the magical worldview of people in the early 19th century New England. There are people who believed in folk magic, divining rods, visions, second sight, peepstones and hats, treasure hunting, money digging or glass looking, and so on. Many people believed in buried treasure, the ability to see spirits, and their dwelling places within the local hills and elsewhere. This is why treasure digging existed. Joseph Smith, his father, and his brother Hiram had a family business treasure hunting from 1820 to 1827. Joseph was hired by folks like Josiah Stowell, who Joseph mentions in his history. In 1826, Joseph was arrested and brought to court in Bainbridge, New York, for trial on fraud. He was arrested on the complaint of Stowell's nephew, who accused Joseph of being a disorderly person and an impostor. It would not be unusual for a neighbor, friend, or even a stranger to come up to you and say, I received a vision of the Lord, and for you to respond, what did the Lord say? This is one of the reasons why 21st century Mormons, once including myself, are so confused and bewildered when hearing stuff like Joseph Smith use a peepstone and a hat, or Oliver Cowdery using a divining rod or dousing rod such as illustrated below. See illustrations in cesletter.com. The above divining rod is mentioned in the scriptures. In Doctrine and Covenants 8, the following headline provides context for the discussion. Revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet to Oliver Cowdery at Harmony, Pennsylvania, April 1829. In the course of the translation of the Book of Mormon, Oliver, who continued to serve as scribe, writing at the prophet's dictation, desired to be endowed with the gift of translation. The Lord responded to his supplication by granting this revelation. The revelation states in relevant part, verse 6, Now this is not all they gift, for you have another gift, which is the gift of Aaron. Behold, it was told you many things. Verse 7, Behold, there is no other power save the power of God that can cause this gift of Aaron to be with you. Verse 8, Therefore doubt not, for it is the gift of God, and you shall hold it in your hands and do marvelous works, and no power shall be able to take it away out of your hands, for it is the work of God. Verse 9, And therefore, whatsoever you shall ask me to tell you by that means, that I will grant unto you, and you shall have knowledge concerning it. Verse 10, Remember that without faith you can do nothing, therefore ask in faith. Trifle not with these things, do not ask for that which you ought not. Verse 11. Ask that you may know the mysteries of God, and that you may translate and receive knowledge from all of those ancient records which have been hid up that are sacred, and according to your faith shall it be done unto you. DNC section 8 verses 6 through 11. Emphasis added. From the DNC 8 account, we don't really know much about what exactly the gift of Aaron is that Oliver Cowdery received. What is the gift of Aaron? The text provides several clues. Oliver has a history of using it, since it has told him many things. It is the gift of God. It is to be held in Oliver's hands and kept there, impervious to any power. It allows Oliver to do marvelous works. It is the work of God. 
the Lord will speak through it to Oliver and tell him anything he asks while using it. It works through faith. It enables Oliver to translate ancient sacred documents. With only these clues, the gift of Aaron remains very hard to identify. The task becomes much easier, however, when we look at the original revelation contained in the Book of Commandments, a predecessor volume to the Doctrine and Covenants used by the LDS Church before 1835. Section 7 of the Book of Commandments contains wording that was changed in the Doctrine and Covenants Section 8. The term Gift of Aaron was originally Rod and Rod of Nature in the Book of Commandments. Now this is not all, for you have another gift, which is the gift of working with the rod. Behold, it has told you things. Therefore there is no other power save God that can cause this rod of nature to work in your hands. The Book of Commandments, section 7, verse 3. So what is the gift of Aaron mentioned in DNC 8? It is a rod of nature. What is a rod of nature? It is a divining rod, or dousing rod, as illustrated in the above images which Oliver Cowdery used to hunt for buried treasure. Cowdery's use of a divining rod to search for buried treasure evokes similar images of Joseph Smith hunting for treasure with a stone in a hat. Oliver also wished to use this divining rod in the same way Joseph Smith used his stone and hat to translate ancient documents. Doctrine and Covenants section 8 indicates that the Lord, through Joseph Smith, granted Oliver's request to translate using a rod. If Oliver Cowdery's gift was really a divining rod, then this tells us that the origins of the church are much more involved in folk magic and superstition than we've been led to believe by the LDS church's whitewashing of its origins and history. Number 3. Witnesses we are told that the witnesses never disavowed their testimonies, but we have not come to know these men or investigated what else they said about their experiences. They are 11 individuals, Martin Harris, Oliver Cowdery, Hiram Page, David Whitmer, John Whitmer, Christian Whitmer, Jacob Whitmer, Peter Whitmer Jr., Hiram Smith, Samuel Smith, and Joseph Smith Sr., who all shared a common worldview of second sight, magic, and treasure digging, which is what drew them together in 1829. The following are several facts and observations on several of the Book of Mormon witnesses. Martin Harris Martin Harris was anything but a skeptical witness. He was known by many of his peers as an unstable, gullible, and superstitious man. Reports assert that he and the other witnesses never literally saw the gold plates, but only an object said to be the plates covered with a cloth. Additionally, Martin Harris had a direct conflict of interest in being a witness. He was deeply financially invested in the Book of Mormon as he mortgaged his farm to finance the book. The following are some accounts that show the superstitious side of Martin Harris. Once while reading scripture, he reportedly mistook a candle sputtering as a sign that the devil desired him to stop. Another time he excitedly awoke from his sleep, believing that a creature as large as a dog had been upon his chest, though a nearby associate could find nothing to confirm his fears. Several hostile and perhaps unreliable accounts told of visionary experiences with Satan and Christ. Harris once reporting that Christ had been poised on a roof beam. BYU professor Ronald W. Walker, Martin Harris, Mormonism's early convert, page 34 through 35. No matter where he went, he saw visions and supernatural appearances all around him. He told the gentleman in Palmyra after one of his excursions to Pennsylvania while the translation of the Book of Mormon was going on, that on the way he met the Lord Jesus Christ, who walked along by the side of him in the shape of a deer for two or three miles. 
talking with him as familiarly as one man talks with another. John A. Clark Letter, August 31, 1840, in Early Mormon Documents, Chapter 2, Verse 271. According to two Ohio newspapers, shortly after Harris arrived in Kirtland, he began claiming to have seen Jesus Christ, and that he is the handsomest man that he ever did see. He had also seen the devil, whom he described as a very sleek-haired fellow with four feet and a head like that of a jackass. Early Mormon Documents, Chapter 2, Verse 271, Note 32 Before Harris became a Mormon, he had already changed his religion at least five times. After Joseph's death, Harris continued this earlier pattern by joining and leaving five more different sects, including James Strang, whom Harris went on a mission to England for, other Mormon offshoots, and the Shakers. Not only did Harris join other religions, he testified and witnessed for them. It has been reported that Martin Harris declared repeatedly that he had as much evidence for a Shaker book he had as for the Book of Mormon. The Braden and Kelly Debate, page 173. In addition to devotion to self-proclaimed prophet James Strang, Martin Harris was a follower to another self-proclaimed Mormon prophet by the name of Gladden Bishop. Like Strang, Bishop claimed to have plates, Urim and Thummim, and that he was receiving revelation from the Lord. Martin was one of Gladden Bishop's witnesses to his claims. If someone testified of some strange spiritual encounter he had, but he also told you that he conversed with Jesus who took the form of a deer, saw the devil with his four feet and donkey head, chipped off a chunk of a stone box that would mysteriously move beneath the ground to avoid capture, interpreted simple things like a flickering of a candle as a sign of the devil, had a creature appearing on his chest that no one else could see. Would you believe his claims, or would you call the nearest mental hospital? With inconsistency, conflict of interest, magical thinking, and superstition like this, exactly what credibility does Martin Harris have, and why should I believe him? David Whitmer David claimed in early June 1829, before their group declaration, that he, Cowdery, and Joseph Smith observed one of the Nephites carrying the records in a knapsack on his way to Camorra. Several days later, this trio perceived that the same person was under the shed at the Whitmer farm. An Insider's View of Mormon Origins, page 179. In 1880, David Whitmer was asked for a description of the angel who showed him the plates. Whitmer responded that the angel had no appearance or shape. When asked by the interviewer how he then could bear testimony that he had seen and heard an angel, Whitmer replied, Have you never had impressions? To which the interviewer responded, Then you had impressions as the Quaker when the spirit moves, or as a good Methodist in giving a happy experience, a feeling? Just so, replied Whitmer. Interview with John Murphy, June 1880, EMD, chapter 5, verse 36. A young Mormon lawyer, James Henry Moyle, who interviewed Whitmer in 1885, asked if there was any possibility that Whitmer had been deceived. His answer was unequivocal, that he saw the plates and heard the angel with unmistakable clearness. But Moyle went away, not fully satisfied. It was more spiritual than I anticipated. Moyle Diary, June 28, 1885, EMD, Chapter 5, Verse 141 Whitmer's testimony also included the following. 
If you believe my testimony to the Book of Mormon, if you believe that God spake to us three witnesses by his own voice, then I tell you that in June 1838, God spake to me again by his own voice from the heavens and told me to separate myself from among the Latter-day Saints. For as they sought to do unto me, so it should be done unto them. David Whitmer, an address to all believers in Christ, promoting his Whitmerite sect. If David Whitmer is a credible witness, why are we only using his testimony of the Book of Mormon while ignoring his other testimony claiming that God himself spoke to Whitmer by his own voice from the heavens in June 1838, commanding Whitmer to apostatize from the Lord's one and only true church? Oliver Cowdery Like Joseph and most of the Book of Mormon witnesses, Oliver Cowdery and his family were treasure hunters. Oliver's preferred tool of trade, as mentioned above, was the divining rod. He was known as a rodsman. Along with the witnesses, Oliver held a magical mindset. Oliver Cowdery was not a subjective and independent witness. As scribe for the Book of Mormon, co-founder of the church and cousin to Joseph Smith, there was a serious conflict of interest in Oliver being a witness. Number 4. Second Sight People believed they could see things as a vision in their mind. They called it second sight. We call it imagination. It made no difference to these people they saw with their natural eyes or their spiritual eyes, as they both were one and the same. As mentioned previously, people believed they could see spirits and their dwelling places in the local hills, along with seeing buried treasure deep in the ground. This supernatural way of seeing the world is also referred in Doctrine and Covenants as the eyes of our understanding. If the plates and the experiences were real and tangible as 21st century Mormons are led to believe, why would the witnesses make the following kind of statements when describing the plates and the experience? While praying, I passed into a state of entrancement, and in that state I saw the angel and the plates. Martin Harris, Anthony Metcalf, 10 years before the mast, in D. Microfilm Copy, page 70 through 71. I never saw the gold plates, only in a visionary or entranced state. EMD, chapter 2, verse 346 through 347. He only saw the plates with a spiritual eye. Joseph Smith begins his work, volume 1, 1958. As shown in the vision, Zenas H. Gurley Jr., interview with David Whitmer on January 14, 1885. Never saw the plates with his natural eyes, but only in vision or imagination. Letter from Stephen Burnett to Brother Johnson, April 15, 1838, in Joseph Smith Letter Book, page 2. They were shown to me by a supernatural power. History of the Church, volume 3, chapter 21, page 307 through 308. When I came to hear Martin Harris state in public that he never saw the plates with his natural eyes, only in vision or imagination, Neither Oliver nor David, and also that the eight witnesses never saw them and hesitated to sign that instrument for that reason, but were persuaded to do it. The last pedestal gave way. In my view, our foundation was sapped, and the entire structure fell into a heap of ruins. I therefore, three weeks since in the stone chapel, renounced the Book of Mormon. After we were done speaking, M. Harris arose and said he was sorry for any man who rejected the Book of Mormon, for he knew it was true. He said he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box with only a tablecloth or a handkerchief over them, but he never saw them, only as he saw a city through a mountain, and said that he never should have told the testimony of the eight was false, if it had not been picked out of... It's not clear in this point whether it was him or me, he said, but should have let it pass as it was.
Letter from Stephen Burnett to Brother Johnson, April 15, 1838, in Joseph Smith Letter Book, page 2. The foreman in the Palmyra printing office that produced the first Book of Mormon said that Harris used to practice a good deal of his characteristic jargon and seeing with the spiritual eye and the like. Mormonism, Its Origin, Rise, and Progress, page 71. Two other Palmyra residents said that Harris told them that he had seen the plates with the eye of faith or spiritual eyes. EMD, chapter 2, verse 270, and chapter 3, verse 22. John H. Gilbert, the typesetter for most of the Book of Mormon, said that he had asked Harris, Martin, do you see those plates with your naked eyes? According to Gilbert, Harris looked down for an instant, raised his eyes up, and said, No, I saw them with a spiritual eye. EMD, chapter 2, verse 548. If these witnesses literally saw the plates like everyone else on the planet sees tangible objects, why strange statements like, I never saw them only as I see a city through a mountain? What does that even mean? I've never seen a city through a mountain, have you? Why all these bizarre statements from the witnesses if the plates were real and the event literal? Why would you need a vision or supernatural power to see real, physical plates that Joseph said were in a box that he carried around? When Martin Harris was asked, But did you see them with your natural, your bodily eyes, just as you see this pencil case in my hand? Now say no or yes to this. Martin answered, I did not see them as I do that pencil case, yet I saw them with the eye of faith. I saw them just as distinctly as I see anything around me, though at the time they were covered over with a cloth. Origin and History of the Mormonites, page 406. Why couldn't Martin just simply answer yes? Number 5. James Strang and the Voree Plates Witnesses James Strang and his claims are absolutely fascinating. He was basically Joseph Smith 2.0, but with a twist. Like Joseph, Strang did the following claimed that he was visited by an angel who reserved plates for him to translate into the word of God. The record which was sealed from my servant Joseph, unto thee it is reserved. Received the Urim and Thummim. Produced eleven witnesses who testified that they too had seen and inspected the ancient metal plates. Introduced new scripture. After unearthing the plates, the same plates as Laban, from whom Nephi took the brass plates in Jerusalem, String translated it into scripture called the Book of the Law of the Lord. Established a new church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Strangite. Its headquarters is still in Voree, Wisconsin. Like the Book of Mormon, the Book of the Law of the Lord has the testimony of its witnesses in its preface. Testimony. Be it unto all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people, to whom this Book of the Law of the Lord shall come that James J. Strang has the plates of the ancient book of the law of the Lord given to Moses, from which he translated this law, and has shown them to us. We examined them with our eyes and handled them with our hands. The engravings are beautiful antique workmanship, bearing a striking resemblance to the ancient oriental languages, and those from which the laws in this book were translated are eighteen in number, about seven inches and three-eighths wide by nine inches long occasionally embellished with beautiful pictures. And we testify unto you all that the everlasting kingdom of God is established, in which this law shall be kept, till it brings in rest and everlasting righteousness to all the faithful. Samuel Graham, Samuel P. Bacon, Warren Post, Phineas Wright, Albert N. Hosmer, Ebenezer Page, Jahil Savage.
In addition to the above seven witnesses, there were four witnesses who went with Strang as they unearthed the Voree plates. Testimony of Witnesses to the Voree Plates Number 1. On the 19th day of September 1845, we, Aaron Smith, Jira B. Whelan, James N. Van Nostrand, and Edward Whitcomb, assembled at the call of James J. Strang, who is by us and many others approved as the prophet and seer of God. He proceeded to inform us that it had been revealed to him in a vision that an account of an ancient people was buried in a hill south of White River Bridge, near the east line of Walworth County, and leading us to an oak tree about one foot in diameter, told us that we would find it enclosed in a case of rude earthen ware, under the tree at the depth of about three feet, requested us to dig it up, and charged us to examine the ground so that we should know we were not imposed upon and that it had not been buried there since the tree grew. The tree was surrounded by a sward of deeply rooted grass, which as is usually found in the openings, and upon the most critical examination we could not discover any indication that it had ever been cut through or disturbed. Number 2. We then dug up the tree and continued to dig to the depth of about 3 feet, where we found a case of slightly baked clay containing three plates of brass, on one side of one is a landscape view of the south end of Gardner's Prairie and the range of hills where they were dug. On another is a man with a crown on his head and a scepter in his hand. Above is an eye before an upright line, below the sun and moon surrounded with twelve stars. At the bottom are twelve large stars, from three of which pillars arise, and closely interspersed with them are seventy very small stars. The other four sides are very closely covered with what appear to be alphabetic characters, but in a language of which we have no knowledge. Number 3. The case was found embedded in indurated clay, so closely fitting it that it broke in taking out, and the earth below the soil was so hard as to be dug with difficulty even with a pickaxe. Over the case was found a flat stone, about one foot wide each way, and three inches thick, which appeared to have undergone the action of fire and fell in pieces after a few minutes' exposure to the air. The digging extended in the clay about 18 inches, there being two kinds of earth of different color and appearance above it. Number 4. We examined as we dug all the way with the utmost care, and we say with utmost confidence that no part of the earth through which we dug exhibited any sign or indication that it had been moved or disturbed at any time previous. The roots of the tree stuck down on every side very closely, extending below the case, and closely interwoven with roots from other trees. None of them had been broken or cut away. No clay is found in the country like that of which the case is made. Number 5. In fine, we found an alphabetic and pictorial record, carefully cased up, buried deep in the earth, covered with a flat stone, with an oak tree one foot in diameter growing over it. With every evidence that the sense can give that it has lain there as long as the tree has been growing, Strang took no part in the digging, but kept entirely away from before the first blow was struck till after the plates were taken out of the case, and the sole inducement to our digging was our faith in his statement as a prophet of the Lord that a record would thus and there be found. Aaron Smith, Jerebi Whelan, J.M. Van Nostrand, Edward Whitcomb ccesletter.com for images of the facsimiles from the Vori plates in the Book of the Law of the Lord. Like Joseph, Strang had a scribe, Samuel Graham, who wrote as Strang translated. Along with several of the witnesses, Graham was later excommunicated from Strang's church. 
There is no direct evidence that any of the above 11 Strang witnesses ever denied their testimony of James Strang, the Vori Plates, Strang's Church, or Strang's Divine Calling. Every single living Book of Mormon witness besides Oliver Cowdery accepted Strang's prophetic claim of being Joseph's true successor and joined him in his church. Additionally, every single member of Joseph Smith's family except for Hiram's widow also endorsed, joined, and sustained James Strang as prophet, seer, and revelator. What does this say about the credibility of the Book of Mormon witnesses if they were so easily duped by James Strang in his claims of being a prophet called of God to bring forth new scripture from ancient plates only to later turn out to be a fraud? Number 5. No Document of Actual Signatures The closest thing we have in existence to an original document of the testimonies of the witnesses is a printer's manuscript written by Oliver Cowdery. Every witness name except Oliver Cowdery on that document is not signed. They are written in Oliver's own handwriting. Further, there is no testimony from any of the witnesses, with the exception of David Whitmer, directly attesting to the direct wording and claims of the manuscript or statements in the Book of Mormon. Visit cesletter.com to view the image titled Closest Original to Testimony of Witnesses, containing the signatures as penned by Oliver Cowdery. While we have testimonies from the witnesses recorded in later years through interviews and second eyewitness accounts and affidavits, many of the testimonies given by some of the witnesses do not match the claims and wording of the statements in the Book of Mormon. For example, first bullet point, testimony of three witnesses, which includes Martin Harris, states that we beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. Second bullet point, Martin Harris. He said he had hefted the plates repeatedly in a box with only a tablecloth or a handkerchief over them, but he never saw them. Letter from Stephen Burnett to Brother Johnson, April 15, 1838, in Joseph Smith Letter Book, page 2. I did not see them as I do that pencil case, yet I saw them with the eye of faith. I saw them just as distinctly as I see anything around me, though at the time they were covered over with a cloth. Origin and History of the Mormonites, page 406. There is a difference between saying you beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon, and saying you hefted the plates repeatedly in a box with only a tablecloth or a handkerchief over them, or that the plates were covered over with a cloth, and that you saw them with a spiritual eye. When I was a missionary, my understanding and impression from looking at the testimony of the three and eight witnesses in the Book of Mormon was that the statements were legally binding documents in which the names represented signatures on the original document similar to what you would see on the original U.S. Declaration of Independence. This is how I presented the testimonies to investigators. According to the above manuscript that Oliver took to the printer for the Book of Mormon, they were not signatures. Since there is no evidence of any document whatsoever with the signatures of all the witnesses, the only real testimonies we have from the witnesses are later interviews given by them and eyewitness accounts slash affidavits made by others, some of which are shown previously. From a legal perspective, the statements of the testimonies of the three and eight witnesses hold no credibility or weight in a court of law, as there are a. no signatures of any of the witnesses except Oliver, b. no specific dates, c. no specific locations, and d. some of the witnesses made statements after the fact that contradict and cast doubt on the specific claims made in the statements contained in the preface of the Book of Mormon. Number 6. Conclusion Subpoint number one. The witnesses never recanted or denied their testimonies. First bullet point. Neither did James Strang's witnesses, even after they were excommunicated from the church and estranged from Strang. 
Neither did dozens of Joseph Smith's neighbors and peers who swore and signed affidavits on Joseph and his family's characters. Neither did many of the Shaker witnesses who signed affidavits that they saw an angel on the rooftop holding the sacred roll and book written by founder Anne Lee. Same goes with thousands of people over the centuries who claimed their entire lives to have seen the Virgin Mary and pointing to their experience as evidence that Catholicism is true. There are also thousands of witnesses who never recanted their testimonies of seeing UFOs, Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, Abominable Snowman, aliens, and so on. It doesn't mean anything. People can believe in false things their entire lives and never recant. Just because they never denied or recanted does not follow that their experience and claims are true or that reality matches to what their perceived experience was. Subpoint number two, problems. First bullet point. In discussing the witnesses, we should not overlook the primary accounts of the events they testified to. The official statements published in the Book of Mormon are not dated, signed, we have no record with their signatures except for Oliver's, nor is a specific location given for where the events occurred. These are not eleven legally sworn affidavits, but rather simple statements pre-written by Joseph Smith with claims of having been signed by three men and another eight. Second bullet point. All of the Book of Mormon witnesses, excepting Martin Harris, were related by blood or marriage either with the Smiths or Whitmers. Oliver Cowdery, married to Elizabeth Ann Whitmer, and cousin to Joseph Smith, Hiram Page, married to Catherine Whitmer, and the five Whitmers were related by marriage. Of course, Hiram Smith, Samuel Smith, and Joseph Smith Sr. were Joseph's brothers and father. Mark Twain made light of this obvious problem. I could not feel more satisfied and at rest if the entire Whitmer family had testified. Roughing it, page 107 through 115. Third bullet point. Within eight years, all of the three witnesses were excommunicated from the church. This is what Joseph Smith said about them in 1838. Such characters as John Whitmer, David Whitmer, Oliver Cowdery, and Martin Harris are too mean to mention, and we had liked to have forgotten them. History of the Church, Volume 3, Chapter 15, Page 232 This is what First Counselor of the First Presidency and once close associate Sidney Rigdon had to say about Oliver Cowdery. A lying, thieving, counterfeiting man who was united with a gang of counterfeiters, thieves, liars, and blacklegs in the deepest dye to deceive, cheat, and defraud the saints out of their property by every art and stratagem which wickedness could prevent. February 15, 1841, Letter and Testimony, pages 6 through 9. What does it say about the witnesses and their characters if even the prophet and his counselor in the first presidency thought they were questionable? Fourth bullet point. As mentioned in the above polygamy slash polyandry section, Joseph was able to influence and convince many of the 31 witnesses to lie and perjure in a sworn affidavit that Joseph was not a polygamist. Is it outside the realm of possibility that Joseph was also able to influence or manipulate the experiences of his own magical thinking, treasure digging family and friends as witnesses? Mormon men who already believed in second sight and who already believed that Joseph Smith was a true prophet of God? Fifth bullet point. If the prophet Joseph Smith could get duped with the Kinderhook plates thinking that the 19th century fake plates were a legitimate record of a descendant of Ham, how is having gullible guys like Martin Harris handling the covered gold plates going to prove anything? Sixth bullet point. 
James Strang's claims and Vori Plate's witnesses are distinctive and more impressive compared to the Book of Mormon witnesses. First subpoint. All of Strang's witnesses were not related to one another through blood or marriage like the Book of Mormon witnesses were. Second subpoint. Some of the witnesses were not members of Strang's church. Third subpoint. The Vori Plates were displayed in a museum for both members and non-members to view and examine. Fourth subpoint. Strang provided four witnesses who testified that on his instructions, they actually dug the plates up for Strang while he waited for them to do so. They confirmed that the ground looked previously undisturbed. Seventh bullet point. The Shakers and Ann Lee. The Shakers felt that Christ had made his second appearance on earth in a chosen female known by the name of Ann Lee and acknowledged by us as our blessed mother in the work of redemption. Sacred Roland Book, page 358. The Shakers, of course, did not believe in the Book of Mormon, but they had a book entitled A Holy, Sacred, and Divine Roland Book from the Lord God of Heaven to the Inhabitants of Earth. More than 60 individuals gave testimony to the Sacred Roland Book, which was published in 1843. Although not all of them mention angels appearing, some of them tell of many angels visiting them. One woman told of eight different visions. Here is the testimony statement. We the undersigned hereby testify that we saw the holy angel standing upon the housetop as mentioned in the foregoing declaration holding the roll and book. Betsy Booth, Louisa Chamberlain, Katie DeWitt, Laura Ann Jacobs, Sarah Maria Lewis, Sarah Ann Spencer, Lucinda McDaniels, Maria Hedrick. Joseph Smith only had three witnesses who claimed to see an angel. The Shakers, however, had a large number of witnesses who claimed they saw angels in the sacred roll and book. There are over a hundred pages of testimony from living witnesses. The evidence seems to show that Martin Harris accepted the sacred role in book as a divine revelation. Clark Braden stated, Harris declared repeatedly that he had as much evidence for a Shaker book as he had for the Book of Mormon. The Braden and Kelly Debate, page 173. Why should we believe the Book of Mormon witnesses but not the Shaker's witnesses? What are we to make of the reported Martin Harris comment that he had as much evidence for the Shaker book he had as for the Book of Mormon? In light of the James String slash Voree Plates witnesses, the fact that all of the Book of Mormon witnesses except Martin Harris were related to Joseph Smith or David Whitmer, along with the fact that all of the witnesses were treasure hunters who believed in second sight, and in light of their superstitions and reputations, why would anyone gamble with their lives in believing in a book based on anything these men said or claimed, or what's written on the testimonies of the witnesses page in the Book of Mormon? The mistake that is made by 21st century Mormons is that they're seeing the Book of Mormon witnesses as empirical, rational 19th century men instead of the 19th century magical thinking, superstitious, and treasure-digging men they were. They have ignored the peculiarities of their worldview and by so doing, they misunderstand their experiences as witnesses. At the end of the day, it all doesn't matter. The Book of Mormon witnesses and their testimonies of the gold plates are irrelevant. It does not matter whether 11 19th century treasure diggers with magical worldviews saw some gold plates or not. It doesn't matter because of this one simple fact. Joseph did not use the gold plates for translating the Book of Mormon. 
ccesletter.com for an infographic with Moroni praying over the plates and Joseph Smith sticking his head in a hat with text reading, Ancient prophets went through all of the trouble of engraving, storing, compiling, hiding, and protecting the gold plates, and Moroni even came back as an angel. Also, Joseph Smith could translate them just by peering at a rock in his hat?